the musical group, The Fray, have a song called You Found Me. And uh, it begins like this. I found God on the corner of First and Amistad, where the West was all but one. All alone, smoking his last cigarette. Said, where you been? He said, ask anything. Where were you when everything was falling apart? Where all my days were spent by the telephone that never rang. And all I needed was a call that never came from the corner of First and Amistad. I think for many of us, that's a bit shocking to hear somebody address God that way. But it's not all that uncommon to approach God that way in our day. I think C.S. Lewis explains it really well in his, his paper titled, God in the Dock. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is a quiet and kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. So when you, when you see a picture like this, you can understand why people don't even, aren't really concerned with whether there's a God or not. I mean, all it really would matter is that they could face God someday and, and call him to account for the way that he's treated them. I think there's a lot of people who think God's done a lousy job and, and they, they think he, he should have to answer for it. As far as our society is concerned, the individual is ultimate, not God. Every individual has the right to have their own personal psychological needs met. And so what you have today is that the failure to affirm another individual's sense of personal identity, it's not just a matter of, of differing opinions. It's viewed today as oppressive because it withholds something very important from, from another person, one's personal sense of well-being. So if I fail to affirm someone's personal choices about their beliefs, about their identity, or about the way that they should be or how they consider themselves, I'm viewed as oppressive. So how much more would the God of the Bible be viewed as oppressive? And, and this isn't just an idea out there somewhere. This is not just what, what people outside the church think. We've been impacted by this, and we need to understand that. It, you can see the impact when you think about how we think about our jobs and what's most important with our jobs. Personal satisfaction is one of the most important factors when it comes to jobs today. Why? Because we believe that we have a very important right to psychological well-being. Why is mental health so important today? Because we are very, very concerned about meeting our own psychological needs. And that's a shift that's happened in our culture. But what it means is that we're the ones who determine what's important for us. And even though we believers may have the good sense not to put God on trial per se, we can be guilty of thinking at times of ourselves as ultimate. We can think that how we feel is what matters most. So how can we put our lives into the kind of perspective the Bible describes? I mean, perhaps a picture of a courtroom is, is a good way to get at this. Maybe putting everything into perspective can be done by seeing a, a certain courtroom, not an imaginary one, but the courtroom that every single one of us is going to be in one day. So Jesus gives us that picture in our passage this morning. There is going to be a trial that every one of us is going to face in the future, but it, it's not God who's going to be in the dock. It'll be us. Each of us individually. So in Jesus' last recorded teaching, in Matthew's gospel, he tells us about the king's ruling in the final court. So we have a supreme court in our state and in the country. It's the highest court. This supreme court is the, the supreme court of the universe. It has one session. 
And what we're going to see in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, are are three aspects of this this courtroom scene. We're going to see the king's separation of everyone into two sections. And then we're going to see the king's ruling for those on his right, followed by the king's ruling for those on his left. And what that's going to do is I think it's going to help us understand how we are to view our lives now. It's going to help us understand what really matters most. So Jesus will help us put that into perspective. You can turn to Matthew 25 if you haven't already done so. And we'll we'll take a look at the first aspect of this, this final court, the king's separation. So Jesus explains the king's separation in verses 31 through 34. But, but before we get to that separation, I just want to clarify who I'm talking about when I say the king. He mentions the king, but he doesn't do that till verse 34. Before that, he refers to the son of man. And, and that's a, we, we've been reading Matthew in chapters 24 and 25, and before that, we've actually been throughout Matthew. And what we've learned as we've been through Matthew is this is one of the ways that Jesus likes to refer to himself. You could go back to Matthew 16. He asks a question to his disciples. He says, who do you say that the Son of Man is? We know he's talking about himself because of his follow-up question. In verse 15, he says, but who do you say I am? So what Jesus is doing in using the Son of Man, he's using this less popular messianic terminology. It didn't come with the kind of baggage that Son of God or Son of David came with. And it came from Daniel chapter 7. And if we go to that chapter, and you feel free to look at that, but in that chapter, it describes this one like a Son of Man who receives a kingdom. It's a kingdom that's going to rule over all the other kingdoms. So the Son of Man is a king, and that's who Jesus refers to. So at this point, he hasn't actually referred to himself as a king very often. But at this point, he's just letting it all out. He's very clear at this point, completely up front. So he says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And this is really what the... The disciples have been wanting to know about this whole time. In chapter 24, it begins in verse 3, where they're asking this question. When will all these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, they didn't, when they asked that question, they didn't understand that Jesus had two comings. So what they're asking about in that moment is not, okay, you're going to leave, we know that, and you're gonna, when are you going to come back? They're asking, when are you going to establish the kingdom fully, like Daniel says? So this is what he goes on to talk about. And Jesus had earlier in his ministry, he'd corrected their understanding of the kingdom. So as they look forward to this kingdom, he'd taught them in chapter 13, for example, that the kingdom was not going to come the way that they thought about it coming. But in the end, Daniel 7 is going to be fulfilled. So Jesus is explaining that fulfillment now. But the way that he describes his coming here, you need to understand he's... He's describing himself in ways that the Old Testament described God. So in Zechariah 14.5, it says, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Jesus is saying that he's going to come in the same way that the Old Testament promised God would come. So here's a scene. There's this grand entrance that Jesus is describing. As the promised king of Daniel 7, he's going to sit down on his glorious throne. And in that context, Jesus says, before him will be gathered all the nations. Now, some question whether this is really all the nations. There are some that, as they're trying to put these things together, they exclude Israel uh, in order to try to explain these things. But this is identical to the terminology found in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where it says that we go... And we make disciples of all nations. We're not going to exclude Israel with that terminology, so we shouldn't exclude them now. This is everyone. That's what we're to understand here. Now, so in this case, all really does mean all. And in the next statement, he explains why this is going to matter. It's going to matter, though, not for the nations as a group, What he describes in the next phrase, or the next statement, is that he's thinking in terms of individuals. And 
it's hard to see. Uh, the ESV translates the next statement, and he will separate people one from another. A more literal rendering would be he will separate them one from another. That pronoun, the way that it's formed, uh, it points back to the nations, but it doesn't point back to it directly. It's, it's making a, a slight difference. And the grammars and these, these other Bible scholars, they point out that somebody who wrote in Greek would do that in order to point to individuality, to stress not the group as a whole, but to stress the individual. So Jesus is looking at these, all these nations, everyone, but he's looking at them individually. And it says that he's going to separate them. He's not going to separate them by nation. He's going to separate them individually. And it says that he's going to do that when he comes in glory. Now, there are a lot of different ways you could categorize people today. Uh, Seems to have gotten more complicated on many forms. Some of that, though, isn't bad. I mean, I think in the years prior to now, when it comes to ethnicity, I think a lot of times it was either you're white or not white. Subversity that we see in those boxes checked for ethnicity, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm not disturbed at all. That I think that if there's a complex situation like ethnicity and you're trying to categorize it, you should probably have a lot of boxes. We also know that things have gotten a lot crazier with other categories. We all know about the multiplicity of options when it comes to gender, but, but I think we should step back, just understand where we are as Christians and how we've accepted some of these categories. There are some categories today that people determine for themselves that Christians just kind of assume as being valid categories, like gay or straight. These are categories of identity that many Christians just say, yeah, yeah, okay, it's one or the other. The Bible does not treat those as as identities. He treats those things as behavior. So when we think about categories and, and how do we think of ourselves and how do we think of our identity, it doesn't matter what we think. In the end, in the end, Jesus describes two categories. There's only two boxes to check in the end. And we're not the ones who check those boxes. Jesus is the one who does that. It says that he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And and different Bible teachers pointed out that, I guess in the Middle Eastern area, in this area, they would let sheep and goats just go out to pasture together, wouldn't be a problem. Now we, if we were to observe this, they point out that many of us, these, these different species, we wouldn't be able to discern which one were goats and which one were sheep. But it's not a problem for them to graze together until the night. Evidently, they're saying that these goats would struggle more with the cold, and so these shepherds would have to separate them at night so that the goats could all huddle together and the sheep would, would not have to worry about that. So they would do that. But it would take an expert eye. It would take the expert eye of the shepherd to be able to discern which one was a sheep, which one was a goat, which one needed to go to the right place. So Jesus is describing himself as that one who has an expert eye. He's able to separate everyone into these two categories. The categories are sheep on his right and goats on his left. Now, we don't know who they are by these first three verses, but you might have some hints as to who they are because God's people are compared to sheep, for one, and being on the right is being in the place of honor. But he doesn't say anything explicitly at this point. What, what we do need to think about just in these first three verses is the fact that Jesus is the one who does the categorizing. Just like sheep and goats don't do the categorizing, it's the shepherd who does that. He's the one who separates them. Jesus is the one who determines which person goes to which side. He determines our identity. He checks the box. So it's not going to come down to our personal sense of well-being in the end. It's not going to come down to which side we feel like we should be on. It's not going to come down to anything within us in terms of our own determination in the end. Jesus is ultimate. He's the one who determines which side we belong on. And the unfortunate reality that we all have to face is it does not matter. It will not matter how we feel in that moment. That will not change anything. In the end, Jesus is on the bench. 
and we're in the dock. So the king separates everyone. That's the first aspect. The second aspect of this courtroom scene is that the king's ruling for those on the right. And that is found in verses 34 through 40. So Jesus describes this, this king ruling for those on his right. And he begins with this word, these words of welcome. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The first thing he says is he describes them as blessed by his father. Now that word blessed is very interesting. It's not the word you find in the Beatitudes. It's a different word. It's the same basic idea. It's the same wording that you find in Genesis. Even though it's a different language written in, uh, written Hebrew, this is Greek. This word is the same kind of blessing that's mentioned in Genesis 1, or 28. It's a blessing that ensures the multiplication of humanity. And in Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abraham, same idea is found here where this blessing that Jesus is describing is something that comes with power. So that when God blesses someone, he accomplishes what he tells them he's going to do. It's the same kind of power you see in, in Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks the universe into existence. When he blesses someone in this way, it's going to happen. And it does happen. And so the way that this specific word blessed is, is the form of it It's describing a situation where God has already blessed someone. And now they're in a state of blessedness. So that's what Jesus is describing for this group here. They're already blessed. God the Father has blessed them already previously. And now they exist in this state of blessedness. That's how he's identifying them. So he's not saying they're going to be blessed by what he goes on to say about them. They're not blessed because of what they do. This is something that's already occurred And he goes on to give more specificity about how it happened. He he goes on to say that that what they're about to experience was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So it wasn't prepared in general for everyone. What Jesus is saying is that this is specifically prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. That means from before the founding or the creating of the world. So... Jesus is saying that as he separates these sheep out, he's separating those that have been chosen individually to experience this, and they were chosen before he created the world. So it's the same language as as predestination or election that you find in the Bible. And we've seen it in Matthew already. So Matthew has already, Jesus has already mentioned this, and we go back to Matthew 11, 27. Where Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Earlier in verse 25, he he talked about the Father revealing himself to certain people. So in both cases, the Father and the Son, they're choosing certain people to know them. Now, I know this this is one of those things that people are upset about. I just want or they get a little disturbed by this. And I'm not going to defend it this time. I've, I've done it in the past. But I just want us to see it. And it's very important to see it here because of what's going to follow. Jesus is explaining that his description of, of these sheep, it's based on a work of God before they've even done these various behaviors. So the behavior isn't the cause of their acceptance. It's the proof of their acceptance. This inheritance that he mentions is really just the final part of what God had already planned to do for them from the very beginning. It's not that they're achieving this inheritance for themselves by what they do. So what is the inheritance? Well, Jesus is going to tell them to come inherit the kingdom. Earlier in Matthew, he mentions inheriting the earth or the land. And then and that's in Matthew 5.5. 5, he mentions e- inheriting eternal life in chapter 19 and verse 29. It's all synonymous terminology. He's talking about some inheritance. And an inheritance is something that's given to you. 
You don't earn an inheritance. Very often in, in our context, we think about inheritance when somebody passes away and they give you something. In Israel's context, this is the kind of terminology that was describing how Israel would be given or possess the promised land. That's the terminology that you find in the Old Testament. So this inheritance is inheriting the land, inheriting the promised land, inheriting the kingdom. Now, Jesus usually talks about entering the kingdom. Uh, we saw that when he talked about these, these five young women. They enter the wedding feast, the, the two faithful and good and faithful servants. They enter the joy of their master. But this is just saying the same idea, but using the terminology of inheritance. So what they're going to experience, what they're going to receive, again, is, is given to them. This is a gift that they're receiving. And what this is, if you explain, what is the inheritance? What is he talking about? This is the Christian's future hope. That's what he's talking about. This is the same exact way that Paul talks about our future hope. And Peter does the same thing. Inheritance. In fact, uh, Paul not only mentions the terminology of inheritance, but he specifically mentions inheriting the kingdom of God multiple places. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he mentions it. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, he mentions inheriting the kingdom of God right before he talks about the transformation of believers in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. This is the language of God's hope, or the hope of the Christian. This is what we're looking forward to. So we are looking forward to inheriting the kingdom. And Jesus is able to promise that to these sheep, again, not because of their behavior, but because by his sacrifice, he has made them able to enter. Jews and Gentiles able to enter the kingdom by faith in him. But if that is the case, then what's going on with verses 34 and 35? Because it sounds like the behavior is the cause for their inheriting the kingdom. That's not what this list is doing. This list is describing the fruit of the blessing that they'd already received. So Jesus identifies them. He says that they're blessed. And then he gives proof for that. It's like a ruling. This is who you are. This is how I can demonstrate that you are the blessed ones. Four, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now understand, those aren't grand gestures. Those are very normal things, normal realities for somebody in the first century as well as for us. And some of them do involve risk and sacrifice, but they're nothing that any one of us couldn't do. They don't require special education. They don't require being in a special role. You can do these things. Now, in the first century, you, there was a great risk in visiting somebody who was sick. You didn't have great health care. So if you, if you were going to go and visit somebody sick, you could get sick. And there was great risk in visiting somebody who was in prison. You could end up getting thrown in prison too. But the reality is, if nobody visited a prisoner, their needs, their basic needs would not have been cared for. Food, clothing. You can see that in the pastoral letters when Paul's asking for for Timothy to come bring his cloak. So these are basic needs that Jesus is describing. And he's, he's saying that this is what they've done for him. It's not that they've just done this for others. What Jesus is saying is that they had personally provided the basic necessities that he was in need of. He's saying, you did this for me. And that's why they're surprised. In verses 37 through 39, they're not questioning that they're blessed. Understand that. That's a common misconception that they're surprised. Oh, we're the blessed ones. Oh, we get to enter the kingdom. That's not what they're surprised about. They don't even mention that. Their surprise is that they had a personal encounter with Jesus. And they're saying, when did that happen? When, when did we see you, Jesus? We don't remember feeding you, giving you something to drink, welcoming you, or clothing you. We did None of them remember helping Jesus while he was sick or in prison. So Jesus explains what he's talking about. He says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And what is clear by saying these 
is that the least of these brothers, they're, they're in their presence right now. So who are they? Who are the least of these my brothers? Jesus identified his brothers in Matthew already. He's told us who his brothers are, his brothers and sisters. And in chapter 12, when his mother and brother and sisters came, Jesus took the opportunity to say, who, who are my brothers? Who are my brothers and sisters? And he points to his disciples. It's those who do the will of my father who sent me. And then in, in chapter 23 and verse 8, he explains why his disciples are not to refer to each other as father. He says, you are brothers. And then in chapter 28 and a little bit, in just a few chapters, he's going to again refer to his disciples as my brothers. And then he, this terminology of the least of these also fits what he calls his disciples. He refers to them in chapter 18 as his little ones. Does the same thing in chapter 10. They're his disciples. So Jesus is not saying, he's not referring to just anyone in need here. What he's specifically talking about is that these sheep, the people on his right, they have specifically helped out his followers in need. And by doing so, he'd helped, they'd helped him. Back in chapter 10, Jesus had already talked about this. He'd already said this in Matthew. In chapter 10 and verse 40, Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. And just a few verses later, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus identifies with his disciples in a very, very special way. Paul understood this. Paul understood this on the road to Damascus. You remember what Jesus asked? When he confronted Paul, he said, why are you persecuting me? Remember, Paul didn't know who who it was. He didn't understand that this was God talking to him. Now, at that time, he was going by Saul. so, So Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul says, who are you, Lord? And and Jesus' response is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, was Paul persecuting Jesus personally? Literally. Not literally, because verse 1 says that Saul was going around persecuting other disciples, Jesus' disciples. But because he was doing that, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. So in the end, this ruling on those to Jesus' right, they get to inherit the kingdom of God. These are Jesus' followers who get to do this. And what validates that ruling, the evidence for it, is that they cared for their fellow believers. That's the evidence. That's what Jesus is going to point out. You cared for your fellow believers, and in doing so, you cared for me. That's the same, what's one of the same uh, proofs that John uses in his letter to encourage someone. You can know that you have eternal life. How do you know you have eternal life? Because you love your brothers and sisters. He says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So that's the ruling for those on his right. This third aspect of this courtroom scene is the king's ruling for those on the left. And what you have in this, this third section is really a mirror of the second. So in verse 41, he doesn't call them blessed. He calls them cursed. And I think maybe to separate uh, the cause of their curse, he doesn't mention his father. He doesn't say they're cursed by my father. Because in saying that they're blessed by my father, Jesus is pointing out that this is a gracious act. You've been blessed by my father. That's not something you deserve. That is grace. But here with the curse, I think he's emphasizing the fact that, that this group has brought this on themselves. They're responsible. Jesus doesn't tell them to inherit the kingdom. He doesn't say, come, inherit the kingdom. He tells them, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And once again, it, it's, it's opposite, but not exactly opposite. There's a slight change because this eternal fire is not prepared for them. The, the inheritance was prepared before the foundation of the world for the, the people on the right, but this was not prepared for them. Now, it's not as though if, if the one is true, that the inheritance is prepared for these specific people, that God is not aware that these specific people on his left are going to be in, in this fire, eternal fire. But it's significant that that's not how Jesus puts it. Again, I think Jesus is highlighting their complete responsibility for this. That this was not designed for them. It was designed for the devil and his angels. This is a reference to the lake of fire. Revelation mentions it in chapters 19 through 21. It's designed to punish Satan and his his demons. But those who refuse to trust in Christ will join them. Jesus talked about punishment more than anybody else. He talked about hell more than anyone else. And he describes it as eternal punishment in verse 46. Now, there are other places where you you read eternal destruction. We should read destruction as ruin. In other words, coming to the very end of yourself. But, and we shouldn't describe it and and think of it in a sense of, of ceasing to exist. But you can see why we shouldn't do that here in this passage. There's a comparison being made. You have eternal life which is synonymous with the kingdom, or eternal punishment. So I think we should listen to Moses Stewart and his statement that we must either admit the endless misery of hell or give up the endless happiness of heaven. Those are our options. Now, this is a terrible reality. Understand, this is horrible. And and for that reason, it can seem severe. It can seem extreme. We would not wish eternal conscious torment on anyone And it's a frightful thing. When you sit down and you think about this, and and I wouldn't even encourage that, but it's a thing. You shudder at this. The thing we need to be careful of is is not to try to alleviate ourselves by thinking in terms of trying to to explain this away or thinking in some ways to minimize it. That's going to be our our natural response. But understand, the goal of studying the Bible, the goal of, of listening to this is is not psychological well-being. Our goal is to listen to what Jesus says and heed his warning. So whatever the reason for the eternal nature of this punishment, whether it's it's based on the infinite weight of our our sin because of who we've sinned against, or whether it's because those who who do go to this lake of fire will not stop sinning even while they're there, whatever the reason is, we need to listen to what's at stake here and not, not try to alleviate it. Because it's a warning. So what can we do about it? What, What can we do about this? Well, look at the evidence Jesus gives for this sentence. Again, there's evidence He says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Again, you have this truly identical evidence in reverse. And again, this group responds with the same incredulity. They're saying, when did we not do this for you, Jesus? We we didn't, we don't recommend, we, we never remember seeing you. And doing this, and once again, Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It is the same reasoning in reverse. They did not care for the needs of Jesus' followers. Those who represented him on earth. That was the evidence for this punishment. So what that means is that they never turned from their sin. They never trusted in Christ and then did what every follower of Jesus must do, join the group of followers and care for each other. They never did that. That's what Jesus is describing here. 
If they had, this would not be true. Now, when is all this going to happen? Let's try to think through the, the timing of this. I've said at the end, but, but can we elaborate on this? Well, Jesus points to something in verse 46 that we need to pay attention to. He, in referring to those on his left, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That, that's pointing to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Jesus doesn't mention the resurrection here, but that is the context we see. And my understanding of of Revelation 20 is that this actually happens at two points in time. That the first occurs before the millennial reign of Christ and the second at the end of it. Now, if that's true, why doesn't Jesus mention a gap here? Why does it sound like it's one event? I think we need, always need to be careful with prophecy. You should never be pedantic with prophecy because prophecy very often is focused on a theme more than chronological order. So take, for example, the prophecy that Jesus reads in Nazareth. He reads from Isaiah 62, verses 1 and 2. He's there in the synagogue. And he's reading it. He reads verse 1. And then he gets about halfway through verse 2. And he stops. In the middle of a prophecy, he stops. Because the theme of the prophecy was the Messiah's mission. But part of that mission was not going to happen then. The prophecy was not about the chronology. It was about the theme. And so Jesus doesn't mention the second half. That had to do with his second coming. If Jesus didn't feel the necessity to make sure and show how something chronologically fit, I don't think we need to do that either. The point of this passage is not to focus in on exactly the timing of things. It's to understand the judgment that occurs because of Christ. So that's what we're paying attention to. Now, you could look at it and say, well, how in the world could these people be surprised if this is after a resurrection? I mean, they've already started to experience their suffering. Again, that would be misunderstanding the nature of their surprise. They're not surprised about being included or excluded. That has nothing to do with their surprise. What they're surprised about is Jesus is accusing them of not caring for him personally. Or he's telling these others that you had a personal encounter with me. And that's what they're surprised by. So why is Jesus doing this? Why would he tell his disciples this? Why would this be his last teaching, in fact, before the cross? Is it to correct our end times charts? Make sure that we have a pristine chart. Maybe we know exactly the timing of every little thing that's going to happen. Is that what Jesus was concerned about? No. He's warning us. He's warning his followers. He's telling them, this is what's going to matter in the end. This is the perspective that we need to view our lives from. This is why we need to care about people. This is why we need to care about each other. So what really matters in the end? What really matters is responding to the king. I know in this passage, it looks like what matters is is taking care of, of Jesus' followers. No, that, that's not actually what Jesus is saying. What he's demonstrating by that is that he is what's ultimate. How are, gonna, how are people going to hear about Jesus once he's ascended to heaven? It's only by his followers. How, how is there going to be evidence that they're following Jesus? It's only by connection to his followers. That's why the followers play such an important role here. Because our interaction with Jesus' followers is a demonstration of how we have responded to Jesus. So, listen here. Friend, if you have not turned from your life, the way that you've pursued life, if you've not believed that Jesus is your king who died to rescue you, if you've not turned from ruling yourself, from determining for yourself what's best for you, to submit to Jesus, to follow his teaching, 
That is what matters most to you in this moment. Trusting in Jesus. Jesus told his followers that when we gather together in his name, he is with us. So right now, everyone in this room is having an encounter with Jesus. May not recognize it or not. May or may not. But that is what's happening. And so what you need to understand is in this moment, this is one of those occasions that Jesus says, you're having an encounter with me, and it is vitally important how you respond to that. Now, what you also need to understand is nobody is saying, I am not saying that anybody in here thinks that well, if, you don't trust, if you're not trusting in Jesus, then you deserve this punishment. We don't really deserve that. No, we, every single one of us who is truly believing in Jesus, we recognize we all deserve this punishment. This horrific punishment is what we deserve. We've only, the only difference is we've experienced God's grace and what we want for everyone in here is that they would experience God's grace too. That they would respond to Jesus. So if you hear about this punishment that Jesus teaches here, and you're deeply concerned about it, if it bothers you, understand there is a way to be saved from it. You have to deny yourself and follow Jesus. You have to stop, again, stop living out what you think is best for you. Stop even trying to be good enough for God. Denying any, any chance that you have at, at just muscling up to heaven and being, being good enough for Jesus. Understand, that is not how you get to heaven. That is not how you inherit the kingdom. It is by Jesus and Jesus alone. And you need to trust in him. And if you're trusting in him, if you believe he's your king, if you believe that he is your savior, the one who rescues you from your sin and from this punishment, if you believe that, then you will follow him. You will listen to him. That's not how you're saved. You're not saved by what you do, but it will follow. And today is the day to respond to this. You should never wait. What about those who, those of us who believe we're going to be on the right? Those of us who are trusting in Jesus. How, how should we respond to a text like this? We should care about those that aren't. We should be concerned about them. We should make every effort to live our lives in such a way that we can share the good news with them. What I mean by that is if you're not living in consistency with the gospel, you don't have much of a hearing to share this good news that can rescue somebody from this punishment. So we need to live in line with the gospel, and then we need to care about people enough to share that with them. But I also want you to consider something else. Consider what Jesus has repeated four times in this story. I mean, it's almost to the point of excess where you think, okay, I got it. I've heard you say this now four times. He has mentioned caring for others in very ordinary but important ways. Caring for their needs. And remember, these are specifically followers of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with helping non-Christians. We should do that. But Jesus and his apostles actually set forth a priority that we absolutely must take care of those within our church. You see that priority in Galatians 6.10. You see that priority throughout the New Testament. See, Jesus has placed us in these colonies of heaven, these colonies of the kingdom. That's what a church gathering is. It's a colony of the kingdom where we begin to practice the righteousness of the kingdom now. That's what Jesus is describing four times. Expressions of the righteousness of the kingdom that we should be doing now. So what that means is that the local church is vital to your Christian life. The proof of your kingdom citizenship is found on the basis of your behavior within the local church. where you can help Jesus' followers, and by doing so, serve Christ himself. That's how we need to think about 
What's happening here? Serving Christ. Jesus summarized all these different actions in verse 44 with the word translated minister. So he's summarizing the feeding and drinking and clothing and all these other actions as ministering. Or we could say serving. This is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 20, 28. Where he describes himself as not having come to be served, but to serve the many by giving up his life for them. So you absolutely must serve one another. We must serve one another in the church. It's not optional. It's the proof that you inherit the kingdom one day. And understand just how important this is going to be in the coming days. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he notes that the situation the church faces today, it's, it's, a, it's a world dominated by what he's described as expressive individualism. I've, I've been describing it in this sermon. And it's one where the church is more and more marginalized. You know, the church in America used to be very central. We're going more and more to the periphery. More and more people are deeply suspicious of the church. They don't think we're up to anything good. We believe things that are in exact opposition to what they believe. More and more people in our society, they don't view people in the church as simply ignorant or prudish. They actually view us as evil. And understand that Truman compares that to the second century Christians. That was their world. Where the people around them viewed them as suspicious. Accused them of being evil. And so he uses that as a a comparison of how are we going to survive? How did the second century church survive their situation? He says, by existing as a close-knit, doctrinally bounded community that required our members to act consistently with their faith and to be good citizens of the earthly city as far as good citizenship was compatible with faithfulness to Christ. So the point is we need each other. And more and more in these coming days, we need each other. The local church is vital to your faith. Not just to the genuineness of your first response, but to your continuing in this. So don't take it for granted. Don't treat the church as though it's insignificant. As though gathering on Sundays is really just, it's insignificant. I mean, I'm saved. I'm fine. That's not how Jesus talks about it. Whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus, you have done it for Jesus himself. And how could we not want to serve him? Let's pray. Father, we need your grace in in responding to this. We want to be those who care. We want to be those who look at the situation for those outside the, the faith and we do have deep concern for them. We're not content to just think that they're They're nice people. That we would live deliberately in light of the people around us. With a desire to share the good news with them. With our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, with everyone. Because we know this is the only way. Not out of some sense of of being better than anyone. We, We recognize we are not. We clean desperately to your grace. Give us hearts that are truly compassionate to the lost, recognizing that we cannot take responsibility for for their response. We can only take responsibility for our own faithfulness to you, to your son, to his teaching. And then I pray that we would recognize just how important it is that we serve each other and that we would look at each other. And no matter if we, if we are those that get along easily or 
more difficult, with more difficulty. That we would not look at each other and see those difficulties, see those annoyances, see those things that, that we struggle with. That we would look each other in the face and see Jesus. Grant us eyes to see Jesus in our brothers and sisters' faces. That we would recognize the opportunity to serve people in this church as an opportunity to serve Christ himself, the one who who came not to be served but to serve us by giving up his life for us. That we would serve him. That we we would do things that are inconvenient. Because we love Jesus. That we would make this body a priority because we love Jesus. That you would help us to see how very important it is that we stick together. That we would do so again, not, not with some inordinate value for our own good works. That we would revel in this blessed state that we've experienced purely on the basis of grace. That we would look forward to this hope and inheritance that is a gift. But that we would bear the evidence of being in that group by your strength, not our own, by your power. Through the spirit that you've given us. And again, anyone here who does not know you. Through your son. I just pray that they would recognize. Their sin. Recognize their situation. That they would turn to Christ. Amen.